The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, 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 it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with new sponsor, Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. I'll chat with Harry Fleming, the president of Texas-based Noblis Health, trading on the TSX as NHC. Noblis has successfully developed a cadre of boutique surgical centers in Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix. David Morgan of The Morgan Report joins me for a conversation about commodities. And Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental on the OTC as BCCEF and on the Canadian Stock Exchange as BAC, discusses a proprietary technology called bioleaching used to clean up toxic mining tailings and in the process harvest the gold and silver in those tailings. Let's begin the Ellis Martin Report. Join me now for a conversation with Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the OTC as BCCEF and on the CSE, the Canadian Stock Exchange, as BAC. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized a proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas resulting from abandoned mining operations. Backtech's core technology called bioleaching employs naturally occurring bacteria harmless to both humans and the environment to oxidize the sulfide materials left behind after years of mining. Ross, welcome back to the program. Thank you. If you don't mind, give our audience a brief overview of your company and what your focus is with regard to cleaning up toxic mining tailings and making them profitable, not just for your company, but the surrounding communities that you serve in the world. Bioleaching has been around since the mid-80s. First perfected by Goldfields of South Africa, a big company that everybody's aware of. Secondly, by Backtech, the first plant that we built was in 1994, and we've built three plants subsequent to that. But in essence, what we do is use bacteria to oxidize sulfides, particularly arsenopyrate, which is arsenic sulfide, into a form where the gold is readily recoverable, where it wouldn't be using conventional cyanide techniques. So effectively, the bacteria, their job in these large vats is to attack the sulfides, break them down, which allows them for conventional recovery of gold and silver, and copper for that matter. Hence the expression that you've coined on your website, our bugs eat rocks. It's the simplest way to get people to stop at a booth at a show and ask you, what does that mean? <laughs> it's not a topic that's well known to people and it takes time to sit down and educate people about what it is we actually do you know it's interesting that you would mention booth at a trade show because that's absolutely where i met you i believe 17 years ago in san francisco you've been at this a very long time yes we have actually and through many different machinations of the company the most recent one i split the company in half back in 2010 into a bacterial oxidation company used for mineral processing i.e for mine and then also bacterial 
oxidation to be used for the cleanup of toxic acid generating tailings. And I took the easy route and went with the environmental side. At least I thought it was easy at the time. How has this issue changed in almost 20 years? Well, I think the fact that we have split the company in half to pursue environmental remediation with bioleaching, we're the only people that do that. I mean, Goldfields is more focused on using their technology to produce gold ounces. And the plants that they built tend to be a lot larger than the ones that we've built. The largest one we have is about 200 tons a day of concentrate, keeping in mind that a concentrate is a percentage of the actual rock that goes through a mine. We're throwing out a word called artisanal mining. What exactly is that and why is it so bad? Well, artisanal mining, especially since the advent of the increase in the gold price several years ago up into the thousands of dollars per ounce arena, has led to an absolute war on the environment in countries like Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Nicaragua, Congo, Philippines, etc. What it is is basically your mom and pop out there with a pick and a shovel digging a hole in the ground and some of these holes go as deep as 200 feet in the ground. It's very dangerous mining. Many people are killed through rock collapses, but effectively they scratch out their living by delivering rock to a mineral processor in the various countries for cents on the dollar, really, to stay alive. But they don't pay a lot of attention to the environment and one of the worst things they do do is they use mercury to amalgamate gold and silver from the rock. Recoveries are anywhere from 5% to maybe 50%, depending on what the nature of the ore is. But what they don't get, they throw into the rivers, they throw over their shoulder. I mean, there is no environmental plan for the refuse that they generate. So I imagine that this adversely affects this artisanal mining, agriculture, farming, drinking water, things of that nature. Oh, especially uh, rivers. I heard the other day that Peru is looking at sewing Ecuador for some ridiculous number of $60 billion because the rivers that are flowing out of southern Ecuador into Peru are dead. I mean, they've killed all the fish, the wildlife, and of course that water is used for agricultural purposes as you pointed out, so you're spraying mercury onto farmers' fields. It can't be good for anybody in the long run. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Now, I came across an article related to this by a person called Marcelo Vega from the University of British Columbia who has evidently spent the last 10 years attempting to solve the problem in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru of the elimination of mercury by artisanal miners for the recovery of gold and silver. Well, I've actually spoken with Dr. Vega about this problem, and what he's trying to do is convince the masses that it, it makes more sense to deliver their rock to a conventional gravity flotation circuit where the sulfides can be floated and then separated without the use of mercury. What they do now, of course, is they use the mercury to amalgamate the gold. Then they deliver the end product to the conventional processor in the area who tends to burn it, which effectively means you're now burning mercury and putting all sorts of hazardous gases into the environment as well. It's just a nightmare. The simple answer, of course, is just to use flotation to separate the gold-bearing sulfides from the rest of the rock, and then you can use your cyanide in a controlled environment so that you can destroy the cyanide when it's done. I don't know what the actual output is, but mercury and cyanide together is not a very nice thing to have. So what are you telling these local miners about using mercury? We're saying to them, look, don't use mercury. Just deliver us the rock. We'll crush it, grind it, float it, and then we'll pay you more money for your gold than you would get using your archaic or historic processes they use for recovering metal. It's some of the pictures and videos I've seen with Dr. Vega, it's like thousand-year-old technology. What makes you different, let's say, than the six or seven companies that are building processing plants in Peru for, I imagine, the same purpose? Well, again, there's two types of ore. There's oxide ores, which means 
the sulfides have already been oxidized and therefore the gold silver is relatively free. They provide crushing and gold recovery for these small miners. When you get into the difficult ores, the arsenopyrites, which are refractory golds, you need an additional method to liberate the gold. Historically, they burned it. It was smelting. But of course, you're putting arsenic trioxide gas up the flue and that's been shut down. So it's very hard to find places to process arsenopyrite. That's what we do. Every bioleach plant of the 20-odd there are in the world treats arsenopyrite. We produce what is called a ferric arsenate, which is after the bacteria have destroyed or oxidized the sulfides, the arsenic and the iron band together and drop out as a U.S. EPA-approved landfillable. Not that we would ever do that, but it just proves the point that it's a final benign form of arsenic. Is this still an underreported issue worldwide? As many times as you've been on this program throughout the last five or ten years or so, you would think that it's a well-known issue. I think environmentalists know about it. Certainly folks living in the countries we've discussed know about it. It would seem that the IFC or the World Bank would be interested in, in funding something like this, for instance. Just recently, as recent as two weeks ago, the Canadian government gave $8 million to a group out of Victoria, BC called, I think it's the Artisanal Gold Council or something. It's an NGO. You know, they're basically out there trying to spread the word that this has to stop. But it is also involves an education process for these miners. They don't trust us, and for probably just reasons. They're getting, in some cases, with the arsenopyrate they're mining, they're getting as little as five cents on the dollar. We can pay them 25 cents on the dollar make their lives a lot better, reduce the amount of mercury that's being used in the process, and still make a great buck for ourselves. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. We need to maximize our profits as a public company. How do you make money from these tailings? So what we would do in the case of Peru and southern Ecuador, we would probably build a flotation plant, a 100 ton per day flotation plant. Capital cost, one and a half to two million dollars. We would then offer the local miners better prices than what they're getting now for the material that they produce. And I, when I say better, I mean sometimes up to five times as much as they're getting now. We have to bridge that trust. We have to prove to them that they're going to be doing a lot better dealing with us than they will be trying to do it on their own. That hundred tons of rock that they deliver on a daily basis, when you consider there are hundreds of thousands of these people doing this mining in both countries, that produces about 20 tons of concentrate. The concentrate would grade probably minimum five ounces of gold per ton. So you've got rock that's now worth $6,000 a ton being shipped west to the coast near Talara where we'd like to build a uh, bioleach facility and at 20 tons a day the capital for that's probably in the seven to eight million dollar range so for 10 million dollars we're up and running and we're producing on average about 35,000 ounces a year and our margins are quite fat. Ross, how does the project development actually roll out? Well, right now we're going to try and bring a partner in with us who has a, a knowledge of both areas very well. It involves, uh, obviously, permitting that we have to do with the Peruvian government for both plants. I would say that you're probably looking at about a year's worth of permitting test work to make sure we have the, the right bacteria to process the material that's produced in that area. Six to eight months building after that. So I would say somewhere towards the end of 2016, we should be processing this material. You're going to be building flotation plants in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, wherever these projects are ultimately. Is, is that not right? Well, that's correct, except it's kind of like we're talking about a, a mine. We're actually talking about several thousand square kilometers where these people operate. It's their job to bring the rock to us, which is nice. We don't have to run around trying to deal with everybody on a one-to-one -one basis. We say, we built it, now you come and, and deliver it to us and we'll pay you for your product. Very similar to what the other 
companies. You discussed the six or seven other companies that are processing material in Peru, but oxide material for the most part, not the difficult sulfides that we do. So we're really the only outlet for arsenopyrite rock outside of a smelter, which is about 1,100 kilometers to the south. So they have to drive it down there and then come back empty, obviously. I don't see how anybody can compete with us unless, of course, they build their own bio-leach plant, which is not that easy to do. Well, fantastic. So seemingly, we may be just over a year away from actually facilitating this process. Right. And at the same time, we have our project in Bolivia. Our partner is Comibol, the state mining company of uh, Bolivia. And we are going to be putting in a gravity flotation circuit at a place called Telamayu in southwestern Bolivia that grade very high silver copper tin. And again, that won't be a bio-leach plant initially. We'll be exporting a concentrate, but who knows? Maybe the material ends up at our plant in Peru for processing. Let's talk about funding. Have you got that in place? Well, I've got a term sheet signed with a group called Pala Investments out of Switzerland for 10 million US. The plant itself in Bolivia will probably be in the seven to eight million dollar range, and we'll use the other two million to develop the Peruvian side. We're running two projects at the same time. 16 is going to be a very busy year for us. Excellent. It would seem that this is the kind of issue that would be a friend to people on both sides of the political spectrum. Those individuals or groups that are against mining, especially in these third world countries, and individuals that are really looking to make a profit. And there's a a way to satisfy everybody, put more money in the pockets of the local communities, and satisfy the shareholders of Backtech. Yeah, I I agree 100% with that statement. I mean, you've got people that live hand-to-mouth, literally, in these parts of South America. You can't stop them from doing what they're doing because they're just trying to stay alive. So if, in fact, you accept the fact that this type of mining is going to happen, let's try and do it as organized and as cleanly as possible. On the other hand, there isn't a week that goes by that I don't get one or two calls about another project. I mean, sooner or later, you just have to decide, okay, I'm doing this one and this one, and that's it. We're not a big company. Capital in mining, especially in the junior side, is is scarce these days. We seem to have a good rapport with Pala, and I think as long as we put quality projects in front of them, there's no reason to believe that we shouldn't have 100% debt financing, which is what we're doing in Bolivia. The nice thing is with these projects is that the grades are very, very high. The Bolivian grade is about nine ounces of silver, about two and a quarter percent copper, and one percent tin. In, in tailings. And people say, well, how can that be? And I, it's because they used to mine 300 ounces of silver per ton. They didn't get nine ounces. That wasn't a big deal. Likewise, they weren't interested in the copper, so they just passed it right through. They were after the tin, the zinc, and the silver. The payback on these projects is very short, less than two years. Basically, funding really shouldn't be an issue for you then. That can't be said for most junior resource companies at all. Our relationship with Pala seems to be quite good. They've committed to funding Bolivia subject to their due diligence, which will start shortly. And I think as long as we put quality projects in front of them, there's no reason to believe that we shouldn't expect 100% debt financing for all of these projects. The paybacks are very, very quick on these projects, mostly because the grades of the material are very high. This is not a great time overall for the junior mining sector, and funding is rare for many mining companies. On the other hand, you're providing a solution that is going to be, as we've discussed before, beneficial for many different factions, and you will be funded. That is in process. Everything we look at is sitting on surface. That's the difference. And we can identify and quantify an asset literally within three days with a sonic drill rig.
boring. We drill 30-foot holes through what effectively is sand, and we have it evaluated or analyzed for a grade, and it's either a go or it's a no-go. So yes, I mean, for a fraction of the, quote, exploration cost, we can identify an asset, and it's, that's our decision whether we go ahead or not. Everybody that lends money today or invests money today is looking for cash flow. Nobody wants to be in the situation where you put out another press release and it says you have another 10 meters of two grand gold. People don't care about that anymore. That's not front and center anymore. What people want is cash flow. They want to know you have a real business. And that's effectively what we're striving for. I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't do this once a year for the next 10 years. I mean, there's enough projects around to do that. So in that sense, you stand alone from most junior mining companies in the sector, don't you? Totally. We don't even consider ourselves to be a mining company, Ellis. We're an environmental reclamation company that happens to operate in the mining sector. People call us a mining company and we're quick to say, no, we're not a mining company. We're an environmental company that's cleaning up acid rock drainage issues and we we happen to get paid in the metal that we recover that's associated with that acid rock drainage. Let's talk a bit more about the Bolivian joint venture and Comi Ball. A quick recap. We have a joint venture, or I guess what they call an association, a contract that's in the final stages of being written right now, that will see us build a gravity flotation plant in a place called Telamayu in southwestern Bolivia. And we are reprocessing tailings that are from an old mill. There's probably in total about 5 million tons, high-grade silver, copper, tin. Once we close our financing for the 10 million, we will go and we'll drill those tailings again. We've already done it once, but we need to look at variations of where the metal is in the tailings, etc. Do more flotation work, and then we will start building, I think, by about the fourth quarter of this year. Now, this is an investment-oriented program, as you know, and what would you say to potential shareholders listening to this program for the first time, hearing about your story, they can invest in your company, why should they? Potentially. We've got 42 million shares outstanding. All of our financing for our plant in Bolivia is debt. The debt will be paid back within two years. Our numbers show an after-tax profit of about 3 million U.S. a year. Doesn't sound like a lot of money, but effectively that's about 7 or 8 cents a share Canadian on a stock that trades at 5 cents. Well, Ross, I look forward to following the story with you for the next few months. And what would you say to those listeners that are really interested in your company because of its positive impact on the environment? How can they help? What's the best way to reach you, for instance? I would say that I'm a fairly open person and I answer everybody's call in my office. Answer my own phone. So if you wanted to phone and ask questions about the process or what we're doing, I'm more than happy to uh, field those calls and talk to you until you're better informed. As I have it, and it's posted on your website, that phone number is area code 416-813-0303. That's 416-813-0303, and that's in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Well, Ross, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Thanks, Ellis. Always fun. I've been speaking today with Ross Orr, the president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange with a CSE as BAC. That symbol again is BAC. And on the OTC as BCCEF. Find Backtech's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and click through to their website. You can download the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. Backtech is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human rheovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, 
and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a summary on Oncolytics Biotech. Well, we're a cancer care company. We have a product under development that is looking at a number of different cancers at the same time. It's actually using a live agent, in this case a virus, to treat cancer. From that perspective, it's, it's quite exciting, actually, to take something this novel and to actually get it into people to try to treat their cancers. It's been quite exciting for us. Now, Reolysin is a reovirus which is specifically designed to attack cancerous tumors. Is that correct? Well, this is one of a small group of these viruses, and there are a number of them under development in a number of different companies that actually is naturally what we call oncolytic. So that naturally infects and kills cancer cells without being genetically modified. There are three or four viruses out there that are genetically modified so that they do that. And there's a couple, including real virus, that do it just by all by themselves. And the basis for that is a genetic pattern that is found uh, only in cancer cells. And so this virus will infect a cancer cell and well, normal cells too. And if it actually finds that genetic kind of profile that defines why cancer cells become cancerous, then it can replicate and grow and it'll kill the cell in two or three days. That's just the first part of how it works though. There's a secondary part where the act of actually killing the tumor, I mean, just like a normal viral infection at that point, actually causes the immune system to wake up and actually recognize what the virus is killing, which in this case is tumor, and you get a secondary immune response that actually is probably responsible for most of the long-term survivors that we're seeing on clinical studies. How is this related to chemotherapy? Is it something you do in conjunction with chemotherapy? Is it a separate issue? What are the various methods of treatment? In clinical studies, we've used Reovirus and our branded name is real license for that in combination with most of the available chemotherapies and radiation as well and now starting to do studies with some of the newer age biologics things like Avast and a hallmark of the, the reason why we do that is twofold the first is that those are generally the standards of care to get access to patients in first or second line so the first time they're treated or the second time they're treated have to actually incorporate your therapy with what they're already getting treated with in which cases chemo radiation and new age biologic the more important scientific reason is, is that Riolysin actually works a lot better in a tumor that's stressed a little bit. And I can't be too much more defined than that because it's a little undefined still from a scientific perspective. But if you stress a tumor, the virus actually replicates a lot better. And some tumors are naturally stressed, like in the inside of big tumors where there's not much oxygen or nutrient supply. But some tumors aren't naturally stressed. And so a little tiny bit of chemotherapy or a little tiny bit of radiation causes that nice stressing event. And the virus actually works a lot better then. What is the game plan for the company in general? Are you going to be licensing your technology to Big Pharma? Yeah, when we started up on Clodex, one of the very first things that we did was to say, we're not going to become a fully integrated pharmaceutical company, the old FIPCO of many many, many years ago. And the reason for that is knowing what you do better or knowing what you do best. You know, we're not marketing types. And so our assumption was that we would take the product fairly late into development and then either the company would get bought or it would associate itself with a larger entity that had uh, marketing and sales expertise and if necessary, expertise in finishing off the product development in the very late stage. That is still our plan and I would still expect that to be the outcome. How has cancer research, in your opinion, changed in the last 10 years significantly? There's two absolutely revolutionary events that have happened in cancer therapy in the last 10 years. The first is actually not in the therapeutic component, but in the diagnostic predictive component. People call this personalized medicine. Women, for example, are getting prophylactic breast removal in case they have the wrong genetic profile to prevent themselves from having cancer and those sorts of things. And what that's based on is that 
this whole genetic testing revolution that's happened. There's certain genetic markers associated with certain diseases, not just cancer. But in the cancer area, now we can take a very tiny piece of tissue, like 5-10 nanograms, which you can't even see. It's like a fine needle biopsy. And in a day or two, test that tissue and actually determine if you have a certain genetic marker. And then you can match that marker up against different drugs that you know will either work with that marker or don't work with that marker and allow a patient to get treated with a drug that actually will work with higher probability. And that's critical. The best chance a patient has at an effective therapeutic outcome is the first time they're treated. The second big development has been the harnessing of the immune system. Words that people may have heard are things like checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1, immune therapies. That whole area is in essence starting to harness the immune system to actually attack and kill tumors just like it would a parasite or an infection or if you get a kidney transplant and you don't have the right match, your immune system will reject the kidney. That's all the same type of process where we're now harnessing the immune system to kill tumors directly. And those two things have just changed the entire cancer therapy environment. Your late stage phase three trials with regard to head and neck cancers. What does that mean for patients afflicted with these cancers? Well, head and neck cancer is one of the most difficult cancers to address. It's a region, it's a location on your body rather than a specific cancer. It's really 10 or 12 different cancers all rolled into each other that occur between your lower jaw and your collarbone. That's really the region that's called head and neck cancer. And partly because of that, and partly because it's in many ways an environmentally induced cancer, most of them are caused by smoking or now human papillomavirus infections. Those two things together cause most head and neck cancers. That combination has made it a very difficult area to treat. And what we did was ran the first part of a phase three study, mostly to figure out which patient populations would succeed and which wouldn't succeed, and then to retool, adapt basically, and to do a a second stage in that study. And we are now preparing to do that. The location for that study is likely to be in Europe. And it is, again, quite exciting for us to actually being able to, to be thinking about addressing this very, very difficult to treat cancer. Now, there's going to be individuals that are listening to this program that either have some form of cancer or no someone that have some form of cancer that may be very excited about what they're hearing and I'm sure you get calls on a regular basis. What do you have to say to members of our audience that are interested in potentially getting therapy for themselves or for their family and or friends? We're contacted between five and ten times a day by patients or relatives of patients or friends of patients seeking access to real license for therapy. Normally in the United States the sequence that we direct people to is if there's already an existing clinical trial and we have a number of clinical studies going on at any time in the United States, if their cancer matches that clinical trial, they should seek to get onto that clinical study. And those clinical studies are usually up on clinicaltrials.gov. So clinicaltrials.gov is the website that gives them all the contact details and the people who are involved. Now, if they're unfortunate that they don't have a clinical study uh, that we're running in, there is the avenue in some of the cases to get what we call a compassionate release. That's a much more complicated process and, and honestly doesn't happen very often with respect to our product. Our first line is to try to see if we can get people on an existing clinical study. We don't really do that many of them in the United States, uh, but that is an option. And so if people can't get onto a clinical study and they want to discuss getting onto the product outside of that, that's the route that we would suggest they take. What types of cancers do you believe you'll be able to combat? Realizing has unique ability based on the genetics of, of cancers to to treat up to about two-thirds of any specific solid tumor cancer type. So if you were to randomly pick somebody with uh, prostate cancer, what we know about the genetics, one could expect about a two-thirds probability of seeing some kind of tumor response in that patient. With respect to solid tumors, the expectation is that real lysum could treat virtually 
virtually any solid tumor population, but about two-thirds of it. When you get to the non-solid tumors, so things like leukemias and hematological malignancies, the percentage varies more within each cancer. You can go as low as 20% in some cases and as high as 80% in other cases. So it's far less consistent. But there is the probability, literally with respect to virtually any cancer, that real isom will have some benefit for a proportion of the population. Tell us about your management team and the people that make Oncolytics happen. Well, we have six members of our core management team, senior management, three of which are resident in the United States and three of which are resident in Canada. And they have actually the kind of backgrounds you would expect to see in a biotech company. Our chief safety officer and our chief medical officer are both medical doctors. My chief safety officer is actually a pediatric oncologist, and my chief medical officer was a neurologist by training. And they direct our medical affairs, the two of them, both from the United States. Our senior vice president of intellectual property is also a U.S. resident, and she comes from a very, very deep background in intellectual property, having worked in biotech and then becoming a lawyer and working in one of the largest firms on the planet before she came and worked with us. So we have very specific relevant skills to our business. On the Canadian side, our chief operating officer and myself, both are microbiologists by training, Matt's a virologist, and I have a, a broader based infectious disease background. And so from the scientific side, based on that, and our chief financial officer is a very well-experienced person with having a company running on both the NASDAQ and both on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And so you have a, a kind of a broad-based skilled set from different types of sources required to run and operate a biotech company. A very, very deep experience based though from a public company perspective. You have people who have been officers of public companies for uh, up to, in my case, over 20 years now. It's, I think, a relevant team and certainly gets the work done that needs to be done in a very high quality. Of course, you are a publicly traded company and you have a fiduciary duty in attracting a new shareholder interest. Let's talk about that briefly. You mentioned you trade in the United States and in Canada. Why do you think there's a great deal of interest in health or health-related concerns right now with regard to the stock market? Have you thought about it much? I'm sure you have. Well, biotech over the last 18 months has had a, a very good run, if you want to call it that, in the stock market as an industry. Part of that's because we're actually starting to deliver sort of breakthrough drugs in a number of indications. And it's one of those very few areas where when a person is an investor in a company, they also have interest or a feel-good factor with what they're investing in. I mean, I started out working in the oil industry and you're digging up fossil carbon out of the ground so it can get burnt. And while it's highly profitable in normal circumstances, it doesn't have that personal connection and the feel-good factor. Many of our investors, specifically in Oncolytics, for example, have a personal connection with cancer themselves. And they also feel by investing in our company that they're actually helping move along the work in trying to find out a new therapy for treating cancer. Biotech in general has that very special connection with this investor base linked with, if you're successful, very, very high probabilities of very high returns. If it works out, it's all things wrapped up in one package. Specifically with regard to Oncolytics, let's break down the share structure. What does that look like for a potential investor? Well, our share structure is pretty volatile from where the investors are, what proportion are institutional, what proportion are retail. We have fairly significant shareholdings in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Southeast Asia right now. So it's fairly broadly distributed at the 
times in the past. At one point, we were almost half held in Europe. At one point, we were you know 75 or 80 percent held in Canada. I mean, it, it does fluctuate, and our institutional shareholder base goes from single digit, so under 10 percent, all the way up to 50 or 60 percent, depending on the time of the year and what year it is. So. It's a very dynamic shareholder base. I personally like the kind of worldwide distribution element of our shareholder base. It's it's very gratifying, actually, to have that kind of attention from everywhere. Potentially, there's a great deal of upside, isn't there? Any biotech company, in particular in our case, uh, you know, with our current valuation, I mean, you can go from being where you are to transitioning to having, you know, late-stage clinical data and product approval that leads to very very significant changes in valuation almost overnight. And this has been repeated hundreds of times in our industry. And it's a, a very much an industry where you expect volatility in valuations, but the end is always that prize. If you get that late stage data and then subsequent product approval, you are going to have high degree of certainty, a very, very high rate of return. And of course, you have some of that late stage data with regard to head and neck cancer. I think in the near to midterm, the most important milestones that people should be looking for with oncolytics is with respect to phase two data. We have five randomized phase two studies that are either completed enrollment or about to complete enrollment that we'll be reporting on in the next year. And we have a number of what we call single arm studies where you only have all the patients are getting your product that will also be reporting on lifespan data in the coming year. And the combination of that kind of very large amount of clinical data from a variety of different clinical studies are generally considered to be fairly significant with respect to a potential inflection or change in valuation. Brad, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to speaking with you again about oncolytics during the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Ellis. I do as well. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and president of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading on the NASDAQ exchange is ONCY and on the TSX is ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. For more information, visit our website, ellismartreport.com. That's ellismartreport.com. Today I'm speaking with Harry Fleming, the president of Nobilis Health Corporation, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. Nobilis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers or ASCs, providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower costs for healthcare delivery. Nobilis recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Harry, welcome to the program. Would you discuss the recent acquisition of Athis and the value that this brings to Nobilis as a healthcare marketing firm? Nobilis is a little different than other healthcare companies in that we're selective in the procedures that we do at our centers. We're not like the big hospitals where you take all the emergencies and every type of case. As a business, we're able to select the type of procedures that get good reimbursements and also the type of procedures that we think are easy to market to the consumer. We drive our revenues through marketing efforts whether online or through television ads. We built up a very large in-house advertising team. We were well aware of one of our main competitors, which is Athos Health. These guys are based out of Dallas. They specialize in spine cases through a laser procedure. We knew the team from years gone by. We engaged in discussions with them. They had a very, very advanced marketing team, so they were ahead of us by a couple years. Very good conversion process. At our end, we have a call center, which is substantial. They'll take the message and they forward it 
try and set up the patient visit with the doctor. Over at ATHIS, they have patient coordinators, which are very much like sales and educators. They'll educate the callers. They'll have 15 to 20 different conversations with them along the health healthcare continuum. They're very good at what they do. We wanted to apply that type of model to our bariatric program, our spine program, and our podiatry program, as well as overlay it onto new programs that we intend to offer at our facilities in both Texas and Arizona. With regard to ATHIS, you came across very stiff competition in your area, and the logical move for the previous entity, North Star, was to acquire the competition, becoming Nobilis. This was an odd acquisition in that I've been doing acquisitions for 30 years, and this is the first time I've come across a deal like this where there's great synergies, and you, you often see that in acquisitions. There's a, a great pickup in management, and again, you often see that. Where we really deviated from the typical acquisition is that the ATHIS model is that they go and spend marketing dollars to acquire patients, and they send those patients to facilities, and basically they split the facility fee with that facility as a marketing charge. That other half of the equation is where Northstar plays, although we also market, we have the facility side of the revenue equation. So ATHIS was unable to acquire those revenues. Northstar, in acquiring the ATHIS company, is not only getting the ATHIS revenues, but the other facility fee revenues that uh, otherwise would not go to ATHIS. Kind of a double pickup in revenues. Break that down just a bit. So ATHIS has approximately 40 million in revenues for 2014. You would model that out and say we bought 40 in revenue, 5 in EBITDA. We really didn't because all the cases that are being referred to other facilities equal another 40 million in revenues. And so we're now going to capture that. If you look at it this way, we've got the ATHIS revenues, the ATHIS EBITDA, but we're also getting the facility revenues. And what that means and why it's so impactful to us is that those revenues are going to go to our facilities that are already past break even. And the margin on these cases is over 95%. So you can imagine how much of that $40 million now is going to drop to the bottom line. Quite a substantial portion of it. Tell us about the Noblest share structure. We are listed currently on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We were known as Northstar Healthcare up till about a month ago when we formally changed the name. The reason for the name change is this. We recognized that we needed to access the U.S. market and so we applied for a listing on the New York Stock Exchange. We qualified for that listing and we're in the process of finalizing our U.S. registration statement and we would expect to have our listing come up sometime here in the next month or two. On the New York Stock Exchange, there are other companies called Northstar Healthcare or similar and so we needed to change our name so we did it in conjunction with the ATHIS acquisition. So we will remain dual listed for a time on the Toronto Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange. Our ticker symbol in Toronto is NHC for Nobilis Health Corp and on the U.S. Exchange it will be HLTH for Health. Shares outstanding are about 60 million. Fully diluted would be about 73 million. Considering the assets of the company, that's not a huge float at all. No, I think we're real happy with where we are right now. We think our price is obviously a little undervalued, but we think we can rectify that as we roll onto the New York Exchange here in February. Harry, I've enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on the program. I appreciate it, Alice. We love telling our story. I've been speaking with Harry Fleming, the president of Noblest Health Corp, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.TO. NHC.TO. Go to the website right now. EllisMartinReport.com.
David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. We're looking for sunshine with regard to the mining sector. Where is the sunshine? You are the silver guru. There are many people in our listening audience that are holding on to quite a bit of it. And what do you have to say to them today? The first thing I would say is, uh, you know, where's the sunshine? It's very obvious from doing an objective analysis that the best place to be is actually in the mining sector. The value or undervaluation in the mining sector is a level that just, you know, begs people to get in there if they understand value and understand, you know, so many of these companies are undervalued. That even more so than the bullion itself. But having said that, I really want to repeat that it's more important to own the physical metal than the mining shares. But as far as on a purely objective basis, the mining shares, for the most part, I mean, there's some, and it's a very tenuous time and has been for quite some time to know that we should be looking at value across the board from speculative to mid-tier to top-tier companies because top-tiers are doing mergers and acquisitions. Mid-tiers, you got to make sure their growth profile is on track. On the speculative side, which is the highest risk-to-reward ratio, you got to be sure that whoever you're speculating with, you put in money, can afford to lose, and they have the wherewithal to continue going if this bottoming process continues much longer. You mentioned mergers and acquisitions, and there's a friend of ours, there's a mutual friend of ours that has benefited recently from an acquisition where a, a major mining company picked up a, a minor mining company in South America. And I guess what you've been doing with regard to your own uh, subscriber base is laying groundwork over the years for these types of takeovers. And that's where the money seems to be benefiting investors right now who've just been patient, who haven't sold out their positions, and these potential takeout candidates have been taken out. Exactly. Because we do delve into the mining sector so deeply, we did an article in the Morgan Report some time ago that talked about mergers and acquisitions. We talked about the likely candidates that would be picked up. And then we also talked about the companies that were most likely to make the moves on those companies. So we t- looked at the ones that would be acquired and the ones that would be acquiring. And actually, it's pretty interesting what we wrote and what's come to fruition. We certainly haven't got it perfect, but we were pretty accurate so far. And of course, there's more to remain to be discovered. I think this mergers and acquisition situation is going to continue for a while. We're still undervalued in a lot of areas, and there's a lot of bigger companies that have a lot of cash. So the ability for these larger companies to acquire smaller ones still exists. How can you accurately target those potential acquisition candidates? You look at what the present value of the company is. And one of the first things you learn in finance and you could certainly learn it by teaching yourself how. And then you see what the net present value is, and then you see what the value of the marketplace is. So for an example, let's say that XYZ mining is worth $100 million, and right now the market has it at $25 million. And you know that it's got a situation where it's mining at a small level, and it's in a good jurisdiction, et cetera, et cetera. And it's close, maybe, to a major, like an Agnico Eagle. And so then it's pretty easy to say, well, that's an acquisition target. The main thing is knowing how to appropriately determine the actual value of a company. And of course, on the exploration side, you usually cannot do that process. I tell everybody every month which are the three best performing top tier companies. 
that's pretty easy to determine. But you can't do that in a junior sector because you'd have to be you know, clairvoyant. You'd have to know the future. Writing about is where you can buy a dollar for 50 cents. You know, we'll talk about undervalued company. Quite honestly, I thought that we've been at the bottom a couple of times. We haven't been there. And I still think that we have bottomed. Yet, I actually did an interview with Avi Gilbert, who is a big Elliott Wave type, very smart guy, very articulate, very knowledgeable, very, very bullish on the metals, extremely on the silver side, and more so by far on the HUI, which means the mining sector stock-wise, than he is on the bullion price. There was something he brought up that I had a little bit of an issue with. It was a small one, but I brought it to his attention. And he agreed with me. Both of us have called the top near the $48 mark. And he's been better than me from the aspect that you know, he basically stayed short or stayed out of the market for a very, very long time. And now he thinks there's going to be one more bottom. And so a lot of our readers are like, you know, David, is there going to be one more bottom? Answers, I don't know. I've already stuck my neck out. I said at the bottom in late November or December of last year, where silver had a print of about 14, 15 is probably it. Spike lows are pretty common in the silver market. There's definitely a spike low, but to be determined, the idea that silver is going to go back to 10 or whatever, I mean, pretty hard to say since I've been beaten up personally so much, you know, I've gotten a little more and more and more cautious as time has dwelled on. I mean, I remember when I thought silver was going to hold the $26 level, which it did for a very, very long time. And it broke through, but I was luckily good, strong enough, or you know, willing to admit I was wrong before it happened. I put out an alert, which we have for our basic plus members, and did a video and explained to everybody that we are going to go down below 26. I can almost guarantee it. Of course, we did. And if you look at a chart, that was what I call a psychological barrier. I mean, it was about the 1550 level for gold, and $26 level corresponded to that or silver. And once those levels were breached to the downside, that was kind of the oh no moment for precious metals holders that said, you know what, I don't know if I trust this anymore. David Morgan is somebody that's, you know, putting an X over his face, those type of things. And it's been that way for quite some time. So the psychology of the market really, I think, was at that point. If you want to pick a point for me, that's where I would pick it. And the point is, if you don't over leverage, you bought your metal and you know why you bought it, you just hold it. I mean, even though you bought it at 33 or 31 or, you know, 28 or 24 or 20, if you bought it the right amount, you just hold it. That's what you do. That would be what I would do. I would certainly not want to sell. I mean, if you sell it and you ask yourself, where are you going to go? Are you going to go in the stock market? Are you going to go in the real estate market? How about in the bond market? Really, there's not many places to go, especially now when if you're supposed to buy low, sell high. The miners and the metals are so much of a buy here not a sell. And that would be my recommendation there. I think the best thing to do if you're underwater, the problem of course, as we both know, Ellis, is that people sometimes buy too much or they buy the wrong company. I'm having a lot of experience in this market. One of the things I learned the hard way was being in the right sector and in the wrong companies. When I was young, I loaded up on all these juniors because I wanted to you know, make the big hit. And a lot of these other companies were going up and up and up, and some of these juniors were going sideways to down, and I couldn't understand why. And there's nothing more frustrating than being in the right sector, gold and silver at that time, and watching everything go up. But the ones you picked aren't. 
that's frustrating. As far as timing goes, it's tough, always tough. I'm much better calling tops and bottoms, as I said before. Nonetheless, the best way is just to acquire. I mean, if you got good cash flow, you should be acquiring the whole time it's low anyway. That way, you know, you can take advantage of these low prices. One thing I would caution everybody, though, is averaging down. Unless you really know the company really, really well, you don't want to average down. You want to take that same money and put it into a different company that diversifies you and it mitigates the risk. There was a guy, I forget his name, but he wrote a newsletter and had to do with technology and he was huge on Global Crossing. And the people that got in with him early made a ton on Global Crossing if they were smart enough and didn't adhere to his advice and sold go on the way up or near the top or, or after it topped and started coming down. But he kept insisting what a great company it was all the way into bankruptcy and kept telling his people to average down and it destroyed them. So you got to be real careful about averaging down. Now, averaging down on the metals themselves, that's a slightly different situation because it's a hardcore physical asset out of the ground that has had value for thousands of years. That's a little different story than averaging on a mining company or stock engine. Speaking of averaging down or at least heading down, oil has taken a dramatic decline with regard to, to prices. And it used to be that gold and silver and oil were sort of lumped into, into the same basket and they'd rise and fall at the same time. But I think it's safe to say that there has been a decoupling. Well, I would argue slightly different. I think there's kind of a cycle phase where there's a lead lag kind of thing. Certainly all commodities and the most important commodities commodities go together in a bull market but there was a guy and i didn't study him for very long he had a very interesting theory that there was kind of a rotation sort of like in a stock market where cyclicals lead the market for a while then technology stocks take over and lead for a while and then other times even gold stocks will lead for a while that kind of an idea that different sectors within the market led for a while and there was sort of a rotation you could anticipate what would be the next sector as one was dying off the next one to come to the top well this guy had the same type of theory in the commodities again i didn't study him for very long so i would argue that it's more something that they don't always travel together sometimes there's a leader or a laggard but regardless the point you're making more importantly in my view is that wow what the heck's going on with the energy sector and these are my words, not yours, but the energy sector is by far the most important sector in the commodity world. And with oil prices down, you know, what's the trade-off to benefit versus non-benefit? One of the benefits, of course, for mining companies is 25% for the average company is based on oil. So if you get a deduction of 50% in product, a commodity that you need to use, that uses up 25% of your company's resources, energy, oil, to get metal out of the ground, that's a huge boon. I mean, one of the NYSE companies that we follow and have since the $4 level, that's up quite a bit from there, but it's been much higher than it is today, is dropped its cost from about 20, and this is our analysis, not theirs, because all these numbers always vary a little bit, but we had around $22 all in cost per ounce of silver. Now it's down to like 14 and a half. And not all of that is attributed to oil, but a great deal of it is. So that's a benefit. On the other side, it's been very negative to the shale oil market because most of the shale oil situations require oil to be about $80 a barrel, and it's not. So that's causing not only wells to be drilled less, a lot of rigs to be on standby, some workers to be laid off, but the much more important factor 
is the debt burden that exists in the oil industry. And just to reiterate something I think I said on your show once before, but if I haven't, it's probably the most important part of this interview, and that is that the debt burden in the oil sector is greater than the debt burden was in the 2008 housing market. So wrap your head around that. If we are set up in a situation that's worse than the 2007-2008 financial crisis, and we are because there's more derivatives, the banks are better liquefied, but the derivatives situation is worse. And rather than the housing sector, this would be the oil sector, which affects as many people or more than the housing sector because not everyone was out there buying a property on speculation that the price would always go up. Oil affects everybody because it's transportation, it's food, it's everything that happens on the planet almost has oil touching it in one way, shape, or form. So that's something to be cognizant of, something that I'm concerned about, and it's something to watch carefully. In fact, when this first started, meaning the oil price started to drop, I said you probably wouldn't see any real-world problems in quotation marks until about the May time frame. We'll probably start reading, even in the mainstream press, defaults or debt that can't be paid or extending the debt payments or taking less or you know see you start to see problems come to the fore so in other words there may not even be a bottom that we've hit with regard to oil even as it creeps back up to sixty dollars and if something happens in that sector are you saying it could affect the economy uh, much like what happened with the real estate bubble or, or bust back in 2008 yes i am there's a lag between what's on paper debt-wise and the real world. In other words, most people don't go bankrupt overnight once they are bankrupt. It just means that you know know you're out of money, but your creditors don't necessarily know it. They're sending you a notice to pay your credit card bill and you ignore it, or you call them and say, I can't make it this month. Say, okay, well, start next month, or when can you, or whatever. But so there's restructuring that goes on. There's delay. There's ignoring it. So it takes a while from the day that you're really bankrupt until everything catches up to you, so to speak. Well, that's on a personal basis. But to use that as an illustration to the corporate world where you're XYZ shale company and you have all these loans and you've been drilling like crazy and things were wonderful once you know oil was over $80 a barrel. But now that it's at 60 or, you know, whatever it is, and it's under 80, you cannot service your debt. And so this takes time for that to catch up for the day of reckoning, so to speak. But that day is approaching. And again, I forecast, you know, probably May or so. Now, if we get a huge surge in oil prices and they stay at above, let's say, 80 as an example, there's not, you know, it varies company to company, but 80 is a good rule of thumb, then everything would probably proceed on and there'd be no big problem, so to speak. But as it exists now and the way I think it is going to exist for the next year or so, it could cause some big disruptions on the debt side of the oil market. So it's a potential recessionary event. Yes, it could be a recessionary. It could be more than that. It could be mitigated, perhaps, in a manner that I haven't thought of yet. Will any of this that we've discussed, a potential collapse of the energy market with regard to oil, positively affect the price of silver? Yes, I still am an adherent studying history. That gold and silver, particularly gold, are more of a crisis hedge than an economic hedge. And I know there's lots of people say, well, it's, you know, it goes inverse to the dollar, and that's all you have to think about. 
There's other people say it's an inflation hedge, which, you know, Professor Royas Jastrom really proved it's more of a deflation hedge than an inflation hedge. And he also showed in that book, and what he did on silver, silver, the restless metal, that one, it isn't a constant always that every time gold reacts this way to a deflation, but the majority of the time that it does. And silver was much more erratic what you'd expect it to be. So you have to kind of use all of the tools available, which means, you know, reading those books a couple of times, how silver and gold have reacted in the more current day, because that's more important is near-term data than long-term data. It's always that way. That's how these trading software programs are set up. They're set up to bias or weight the near-term trading activity more importantly than the longer-term trading activity. And that's correct because it emphasizes sort of the mood of the market, if I'm making sense here. So what I'm saying is the mood of the market has shown me that uh, gold and silver react more as a crisis hedge than anything else at this point in time. And so what that means is that there's an oil fallout in the debt markets because of over-leverage or borrowing money that can't be paid back. That you would probably see the gold and silver markets rising. So again, crisis hedge, don't know where to go. I'm going to park in the metals. I've been speaking with David Morgan, the silver guru. Find him at themorganreport.com and listen to this segment again on the homepage of the ellismartreport.com or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 